millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Peter Hart and uh, I'm with uh, lovely Gary Owen. Uh, Gary, Gary Owen. Owen. <laughs> Gary Owen. Who's Gary Owen? Gary Did he play Bain. for Wales? Yeah, he must be from Wales. And uh, we've uh, had a bit of an incident already this morning, haven't we? Because uh, Fred's opened up an early barrage. Yes, uh, and this is, luckily in your direction. Yes, his, his horse is pointing my way. This is a particularly bad start uh, for this podcast, which I've been looking forward to, because a lot of people sort of think that uh, the Royal Flying Corps RNAS, their role finishes with the going over the top on the 9th of April. But it's only just the beginning. This series on the Arras Air War has got a long way to go yet and that and to sort of lead us in what's this episode called well this one is called surprisingly arras air war the fight goes on which is pretty much what you just on said on and on and on and on and on and on and on so uh so what so what so they, 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 they've, they've had great successes on the ninth the canadians on the left the british on the right uh so so what would you say uh tuesday the 10th was well i think you could probably say it was the day after the lord mayor's show clearing up the ship that's one way of putting it <laughs> uh, and uh, and the of course they were they're waiting for news of how it's going they could see things uh, what do you think the first reports were like well they were, were naturally extremely favorable the attack had been very successful and the dramatic capture of vimy ridge naturally figured prominently in the initial reports no. I think that the, the Royal Flying Corps, they've got really good reason to be proud of all they've achieved in this offensive uh, and, and that achievement. And you're, you're gonna, uh, let, let's hear from Captain Maurice Baring. He's, uh, he's uh, Trenchard's uh, main aide. He's like right-hand man, isn't right he? Right-hand man at the headquarters of the Royal Flying Corps. And you're going to tell him what Baring says. Baring your soul. We got news that 10,000 prisoners and 50 guns had been captured on the Vimy Ridge. I went to see the artillery squadrons at Bruay, which had done grand work during the fighting. The work of the army had been done in spite of the weather, in spite of our inferiority in machines, and in spite of the casualties. Now, um, the, the thing is, what, what, what's to be done next? Because the, 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 the attack's been a success, but Haig, who commanding overall of the BF, Horn commanding the First Army, and Allenby commanding the which army? British. 
<laughs> don't we? Good effort, though. Um, I, I asked you because I, I wasn't certain. Now, they all knew the importance of speed if they were to exploit the fleeting opportunities that had opened up before them. Yet, actually, this was easier ordered than done. Yeah, yeah, you can you can say something's got to be done, but but what about the problems on the ground? Um there's a there's a principle here, isn't there? What 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 is the principle? What's what what is what what's what's lying ahead? Well, following up an initially successful offensive, it's still an intractable military problem. It's far easier for the Germans to move forward their reserve what? troops. Why? Why? Well, because they've got the nearby railheads, whereas the British, the uh, the assault divisions, they've got to get across the uh, shell-drenched wilderness, as you've described it, <laughs> uh, with their artillery. And, and that's, you know, really, really, really difficult. And and what makes things worse? What what what, what can make getting across a shell-drenched wilderness even worse? Well, how about appalling weather, Pete? That's yeah. not going to help. Well, got his mittens. Well, he certainly mit the Germans. We got mittens as well, though. With impeccable pro-German timing, the worst snows of the winter arrived to plague the British efforts. Moving any gun was back-breaking hard work. But it's almost physically impossible to get the heavy artillery forward in, in those conditions. Now, there's another problem. What, what, what other problem do you, th- do you have in First World War conditions? Where, where, where the communications problem. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I think you're referring to what's described as the fog of war, aren't you? The, uh, the orders to attack were both given and countermanded. The infantry waited for the cavalry. The cavalry were endlessly delayed and ultimately made only a token effort to explore the uh, possibility of taking Monchy Le Pro. And, and th- they were swiftly repelled they're not back aren't they pretty quickly uh well why is this so essentially the german line has already within a day or so been re-established and uh, you need a properly coordinated offensive to break through not an ad hoc attack uh now there's another problem for the royal flying corps on the 10th of april what would that be well, we've mentioned the weather, but but what we haven't said is that it was snowing. So you you had snowy weather, and it meant that uh, inevitably very little flying was possible on the morning of the tenth of April. Yet, Second Lieutenant Charles Smart and Lieutenant Lytton they went up in their BE two E. In these conditions, it's practically suicide. But they didn't hesitate, and this is what Second Lieutenant Charles Smart of Sixteen Squadron has to say. Early job out of bed at 4.40am, in the air at 6am prompt, doing another NF patrol. I'm not quite sure what NF stands for, never mind. Uh, I'm sure knowledgeable people will. Very high wind blowing with an odd snowstorm thrown in. Nothing much doing at, at the lines, but I sent down one or two active batteries and pinpointed some fire. Just finished our time at the lines when we ran into our most awful snowstorm. Turned west at once, I back towards the British lines, and flew for 10 minutes at a height of 600 feet absolutely blind could hardly see my hand before my face i got the most horrible wind up for there is a lot of high ground about here and i was afraid afraid of running into a hill uh, you mean things like vimy ridge of course yeah as soon as i saw the earth i made straight for it and landed safely was told by some soldiers that i just missed a chimney stack almost by inches and i also saw a haystack just in the nick of time to avoid it oh, without any doubt my luck was in and i was never more pleased to reach the ground wow well nf is uh, naked flying Oh, well, he's on a naked flying patrol. 
lot of that happening, wasn't it? Oh, there was. Now, another pilot who was uh, less fortunate as a, a snowstorm lashed his aircraft out of the sky. It's skies. always good that you're less fortunate because you're going to be Second Lieutenant Albert Fanstone of 12 Squadron Royal Flying Corps, and you are less fortunate by nature. I started out on a dawn patrol with my observer, Mousson, my orders being to watch and record troop movements in the enemy trenches. Once airborne, we were suddenly enveloped in the most appalling blizzard I have ever witnessed. We had just reached the lines when the storm, driven by a 60 mile per hour wind, reduced visibility to nil. Flying at a height of 1,200 feet and knowing that the gale was steadily pounding my machine into enemy territory, I realised that our only chance was to get down and I signalled to Mousson that we were going to land. We descended carefully as I was, of course, flying blind. When the altimeter eventually recorded nil and I could still not see the ground, I started to sweat a little. Suddenly, we were relieved to see the rubble of a ruined village, which I think was Adinfer. But there was obviously no chance of landing in that mess. I climbed for a second or two and tried again. This time, open ground appeared through the driving snow, but this turned out to be completely devastated by shellfire. Being unsure of our position now, I decided to chance it, and praying above all hope that we were facing into the wind, I went in. I was hoping to pancake as a long run into the shell holes would almost certainly wreck us. As luck would have it, we came to rest between the many craters. Save for one slightly buckled wingtip, she was still in one piece, so we wrenched the machine gun from its mounting and dived into the nearest muddy shell hole. At best, we thought ourselves to be in no man's land, and for the next hour or so we lay, straining our ears for any sound or activity, but the only sound that reached us through that white wall of snow was that of the howling wind. <laughs> Encouraged by the fact that we heard no indication of fire, we crawled from our shelter and moved slowly forward. Eventually, we reached the first trenches, and to our horror, we saw signs everywhere in the German language. Still finding no signs of life, we cautiously crept forward, and after a few moments of hesitancy, I saw to my delight, trampled in the mud of the trench, a packet of crumpled English cigarettes. Reassured, we moved forward and finally caught sight of a number of troops working on a rough track. It was with extreme relief that we found them to be a group of our lads from the Pioneer Corps, who informed us that this very position had been taken from the enemy only a few hours previously. So quite fortunate in the end. They're unlucky to be forced down, but fortunate to land. In I'm just double checking when this is. This is April, and that snowstorm sounds well, horrific. We're actually recording this uh, in April. Uh, what, what's the date today? It's about 19th, isn't it? 20th. 20th. Today. Yeah. So it's only 10 days later, and it's lovely and sunny. Uh, shirt sleeve weather here. Yeah. Anyway, um, the weather picks up a bit later on the, on the day, um, but and the Army cooperation machines, that's the ones doing the artillery observation, the reconnaissance things, are busier than ever. There's also another vital thing, contact patrols are being regularly uh, undertaken. Now, what are they? Uh, they're, they're going over to, to, to locate where our troops have got to. Uh, now, what do you think the crucial thing is for that to work? Well... They're being forced to fly ever lower over the shattered landscape, often under heavy ground fire, yet the service they're providing was truly, truly life-saving to the hard-pressed troops. Yeah, because they can bring down counter-fire or they can even interfere themselves. Now, I'm going to be Captain Bernard Rice of 8th Squadron Royal Flying Corps. 
We soon found the point at which our men were being held up and diving down, loosed a bomb on the veritable hornet's nest of machine guns from a thousand feet. Almost before the smoke had cleared, our men were in the place. So raking the back traverses with my machine guns, I pushed off in search of something else to straff. This soon turned up in the shape of shrapnel burst over our splendid infantry fellows below. So we hunted round and soon found the offending battery. My observer locating it and sending it down. I, I mean, he means sending down wireless messages to, 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 to try and bring that fire down. He, and uh, Rice goes on to say, the gunners didn't open it at once, so I climbed to 4,000 feet and swished over and bombed them, which effectively stopped them laughing in church. <laughs> That's a correct expression. I'll stop you laughing in church, Gary. They were a, a, a good long way over, and I was watching intently to observe the damage I'd done when rat tat tat be, be, behind and over me. My left plane canvas was going rip, rip, and large gashes were appearing. So I kicked over the rudder and stood her on a wingtip, straightening her out on a new course. I looked back and saw a wicked-looking little scout spitting fire and coming down on us at a frightful speed. My observer fired like stink while he was manoeuvring to get behind us again. That means while they, they, the scout was manoeuvring to get them behind him. Just as he was about to make another dive on us, I turned again and we kept on firing. By that time, he was ready to dive again. He was up to 30 yards of us, so I went into a split-ass spiral. <laughs> what a great expression. Gary, I'm doing a split-ass spiral, uh, which did him all together <laughs> as he made off. So he made off, so yeah. Flatly now, we we sent another shower of bullets after him, eventually regaining our lines with 16 holes in our biplane. Wow, wow. What do you think of that, Gary? I just think split-ass. Yeah. So, That's what I'm going to take away from that quote. You do <laughs> so, realise that. Don't, you'll be saying that all the time now. So, when the German guns opened on their targets, what's the main task of the Royal Flying Corps? Well, the, the artillery observation aircraft, they're ideally situated to record their previously concealed locations and bring down devastating counter-battery fire. They also had a means of checking the effectiveness of their reconnaissance work. And this is what Captain Eric Ruth, or Ralph, Ralph, I think I'll go with, yeah. of 16 Squadron has to say. When we captured Vimy Ridge, a Bosch gunner who had just come up to the trenches to look for an observation post was also captured, and with him a map showing all their battery positions. Only two batteries in our area had escaped our notice. The sound ranging and photos had every other one accurately. Every other one. So that's just two. So isn't that fantastic? I mean, that shows the effectiveness of it. And and with it, the, the sort of counter-battery bombardments, they're just relentless. To, and, and do you think this impacts on the ability of the German artillery to do what they want? Of course it does. They're, 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 they've got other things on their mind. They're not laughing in church. <laughs> I was about to say yes. Oh. It does impact. But you answered for me. But the German scouts... Uh, they'd not all been overcome and they took a steady toll of victims from the all but helpless observation aircraft but it we've said this on a number of occasions yeah, yeah. it was a price that had to be paid but that didn't make it any easier 
Yeah, because the Brit, where are the British Scouts? Of course, that must be in their mind. But the British Scouts, they did what they could to protect the core aircraft. But their real role is to sweep the German Scouts and Army cooperation, their own Army cooperation, from the skies. That's their main task. Not yeah. their own, the enemies. It, 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 yeah, it's, yeah. it's a bit of an own go if you sweep your own from the sky. <laughs> oh, oops. <laughs> oh, now, no. Oh, oh, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> on the 11th of April, the British renewed their offensive. Allenby... Uh, who's in command of the Third Army? He is Gary. Was determined to keep the initiative and prevent stagnation setting in. Mm, I've often found stagnation setting in. Well, Fred. Fred I wish it set with in. Fred. Now, in truth, they're they're already too late. The German reserves of infantry and artillery were moving up to the uh, threatened Arras sector, and it was now decided that Moshi Le Pro was the key to any further great success. I can see what they're thinking. They're thinking that if you could capture that, that would unhinge, if you like. Oh, you're a bit unhinged. Uh, the, Hin- the Hindenburg line uh, that stretch away to the south. That's the new Hindenburg line, if you know what I mean. Um, so uh, so what, what's going to happen uh, uh, on the 11th? Well, uh, what time does the offensive start? What time would you start in offensive? Well, I'd start about half past 12, you know, had a nice laying, but they started at 0500 on the bleakest dark morning imaginable. Three divisions struggled through the snow in a desperate attempt to get into Monchi. Now, bursting forwards with the support of a couple of tanks and even a stray squadron of cavalry, they managed to penetrate the fortress village outskirts and desperate street fighting began. One of the worst types of fighting, I think we've commented on this before, because it, it, it has to be house by house. It's not even house by house, it's cellar by cellar, uh, because houses then often had a cellar, which of course is a, it, it's like a, a, an underground fortress in many ways. Um um, but what about the, what about the German artillery? They're now further back, of course, and they're not. Uh, we haven't been able to move our, our artillery forward. So uh, the German artillery are they beginning to uh, to take effect? Yeah, I mean they filled the the air with exploding high explosive and shrapnel shells, but the advance had not been uniform. To the north of Monchy le Pro, a strong concentration of Germans in undamaged defence works within the shell of the old Rue chemical work succeeded in hurling back the attacking infantry. Without a mantle of shells smashing down into them, the massed German machine guns had a field day and uh, they inflicted severe losses. Uh, well, again, this shows what happens if, they are, if the artillery aren't able to perform their role. Artillery guided by the Royal Flank, but they can't get them all forward in this bad weather. Uh, to the south, there's a, a similar fate uh, 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 afflicts the, the troops who were uh, going behind an inadequate barrage to attack uh, uh, the village of Wonkor. You've probably been there, but I haven't. But, uh, so this is what we said earlier, isn't it? The Germans have established a, a strong, well, a firm defensive line, uh, and and it could resist any ad hoc it, attempt. It needs a pro, like the the, the first day, uh, a proper focused attack. No, well. Now, one late addition to the British oh, plans. No, don't tell me about this. This was a subsidiary attack assigned to General Sir Hubert Goff's Fifth Army, and it was intended to distract attention and hopefully threaten the flanks and rear of the German defenders facing the main assault at Arras. Yeah, the Fifth Army is to the south, isn't it, of of, of the Third Army? Um, they've only just got into position because that's where the Germans had retreated in March, and uh, and they, and they'd only just uh, got forward to f- take up uh, their lines in front of the, the Hindenburg.
Hindenburg line. Uh, no time for proper preparation uh, here uh, for, for the attack. So how does it go? Well, not only was there no time for preparation, the Fifth Army was already stretched and Goff was hard-pressed to scrape together sufficient troops to form a, form a reasonable attacking so force. So what does he do? How does he... Uh, what, what? You can't do right for doing wrong. We've, we've told... We've said this before, but... Goff, what does he do? Well, it forces him to plan a narrow front offensive and the position selected was Bullockhaw, <laughs> where the disadvantage of striking directly against the Hinden line was, he hoped, soon to be ameliorated by the possibility of a link-up with the advance of the Third Army. Now, this is uh, this is a... Uh, we've said about narrow fronts before. Everyone on either side can fire into it. Uh, a constricted front. Uh, they're, they're getting the the, the the German troops on on either flank are unengaged, uh, and the the Fifth Army assault at Bullecourt goes in at 0445 on the 11th of April. And uh, how would you describe it? Complete disaster. Without any proper artillery barrage or support, they relied on tanks to provide paths through the masses of German barbed wire and the mechanically unreliable tanks let them down. Well, it was a disaster, you're right. And it, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's resented by the Australians to this day. I, I took a party of Australians to Bullockhaw and the tank corps had unwisely put a, a tank track as a memorial to the, the tank tour, which uh, the, a couple of Australians spat on because, because they just felt it was an inappropriate place for it. The tank corps tried their best. They can't help it if the tanks break down. But to the, from the Australian perspective, they, it, it gave them a lasting distrust of tanks. Well, the problem isn't the tanks, is it? The problem is the lack of artillery support. That's the problem. That that's a, that's at the heart of it. I think uh, we'd say the British had essentially shot their bolt, hadn't they? Um, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Good. Um, small t- scale attacks are going to continue. What, what are they trying to do with the small t- scale attacks? Well, they're trying to straighten the ground or or seize key points like the Rue Chemical Works. Small scale, they might have been, but each one brought another raft of casualties. Yeah. But the British, they're, they're just not ready for another full-scale assault. Yeah, they need uh, fresh divisions. They need to get the artillery forward. Uh, to, they need to register their guns when they're in place. And whatever was going to happen, if that was going to happen, it's, it's not going to happen quickly. Um, to, to me, the battle's over at this point. Uh, uh, and one of the reasons Arras, which is a successful start to a battle, has, I think, the highest daily rate of casualties, is that the battle doesn't stop on the 11th of April. Um on, 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 so all through the 11th of April, the, the battle's raging on on the ground. Where else is it raging on? Well, it's, it's also raging in the skies. And one ordinary young Royal Flying Corps officer wrote home to explain what it was that they were trying to achieve. And this is what Captain Bernard Rice of 8 Squadron has to say in his letter. I'm going to let you into some of the work we do. In the first place, there is no reason to be alarmed at our casualties. We're not going under, but just emerging out on top again. Hmm. Uh, We have been working in close contact with artillery and infantry. The infantry always feel they are being watched over. And indeed, a plane goes over first and bombs the points where they are held up, uh, uh, signals to headquarters where they've got to, and generally looks after their interests. Another plane watches for gun flashes and immediately on seeing any signals down position etc by wireless to our gunners who proceed at once to silence them being corrected onto the target the meanwhile by the plane i've seen umpteen tanks go into action crushing through all obstacles parties of huns rushing towards our people with hands held high and isolated battle uh, battles in communication trenches 
We have frequently swooped down and cleared a trench with our machine guns. All this, of course, has cost us some casualties, but it is worth the price, and most of them are wounds only. Hmm. You start at dawn or a little before and finish about 8.30. I think he means at 9. We fly no matter the weather, excluding continuous snow and rain. And as we've seen, not always excluding that. Up to now, we have been having storms only, which we can fly around and dodge and high gales. The latter, the latter, very strong, so very often so strong and gusty that only the older hands can weather them and not turn seasick. This sort of work is going on all day long and everybody is sticking it well. The Hun doesn't attempt such work. He goes about in bunches and a few of his scouts try and catch us napping from time to time while patrols of our own endeavour to catch him at it and keep us pretty well protected. Don't get anxious about me. I'm taking risks, of course. Everyone is, but I'm coming back all right. Never fear. Now, I think there's two things this shows. What would you say the first thing it shows? Well, it shows that Trenchard had got through the essence of his policy of continuous aerial offensive to his men yeah. and, and that they actually understood why they were risking their lives on a more than daily basis. Well, the other thing is that he's writing home to his parents. So he's being optimistic. He's being optimistic both about what the situation really was, because as we've seen, the, the offensive beneath them is grinding to a halt. Uh, but, but, uh, but, but in the end, and also he's under he's underplaying the risks that he and the fellow his fellow pilots are under uh, are going through. But what do you think about? What, what, well, his words, they do actually add the ring of uh, sincerity about them, don't they? That allow us just to see how the core pilots endured with none of the promise of death or glory, death or glory. that was offered up to the, the pick of the scout pilots. Now, the next day on the 12th of April, they were once again heavy snowfalls, which severely hampered aerial activity. And at this point, we shall take a short break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And welcome back. Now, we left, uh, we left uh, uh, 
the uh, the activities story. The story. The twelfth of April, and uh, we're going to pick up unsurprisingly on the thirteenth of April. Oh, and and at last the weather's starting to improve a bit, Whee. isn't it? Yeah. So, um, the, and and what that what does that mean if the weather improves? Well, it means the air's soon alive with aircraft. Now. However, 59 Squadron, they suffered an utter disaster when a patrol of six RE-8s set out on a photographic reconnaissance of the uh, Drocourt-Quiant switch line. Yeah, switch lines are one that sort of, it it goes sideways, if you like, and and enables, uh, if a piece of ground's taken, uh, you can isolate it. Now, Um, only two of them had cameras. The other four were acting as close escorts. Hang on, RE8s acting as escorts to RE8s. Well, they should have had additional scout escort, as it was obvious that they'd be passing dangerously close to the Douai layer of Jaster 11. Oh, dear. Oh, and Fred's just farted. Now, unfortunately... Fred's just farted, but also the escort failed to arrive. And Rick Toffen and five of his scouts did indeed make a most unwelcome appearance. Oh, God. Well, in the combat that follows, it, it, it's a slaughter, really. It's not a combat. It's perfunctory. And all six RE8s are shot down. This is a disaster for the, you know, for the squadron. But afterwards, um, the, the, those that survived uh, and the, the victors and the vanquished, this is unbelievable. <laughs> Met in the Jaster 11 officers' mess. And you're going to be one of our favourites, Oberlautnant Manfred von Richthofen of Jaster 11, the commander of Jaster 11. One of the Englishmen whom we had shot down and whom we had made prisoner was talking to us. Of course, he inquired after the red aeroplane. It is not unknown even among the troops in the trenches and is called by them Le Diable Rouge. In the squadron to which he belonged, there was a rumour that the red machine was occupied by a girl, a kind of Joan of Arc. He was intensely surprised when I assured him that the supposed girl was standing in front of him. He did not intend to make a joke. Oh, yes, he did. (laughs) Public school. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, Oh, I think that's a bit of banter from me. I can just imagine the scene. Flown, flown by a girl. I should imagine that was retold a number of times during the long, dreary years as a prisoner of war. <laughs> You've got to take your small victories when you're sat in a prisoner of war camp. Oh, dear. Well, the, the Royal Flying Corps, they're, they're suffering heavy casualties during this. I mean, this is bloody April. Bloody April, it doesn't finish on the 9th of, uh, 9th of April. It's the, it's just the three more weeks to go. Um, well, what's the problem? Well, inexperienced pilots and observers, they're sent out as replacements for experienced ones, and they only last a matter of hours when they f- fall victim to experienced, practiced German aces, don't they? Um, Give us an exit. What sort of statistics are we talking, Gary? Well, some squadrons are losing almost their entire force in a single week, as illustrated by the 48th Squadron, who lost 10 crews, 10 crews between the 5th and 11th of April. Now, squadrons could lose three, four, five, or even six aircraft in a single operation. Well, so that would be a third of their effective strength in one operation. Now, don't forget, this is on top of the daily trickle of casualties, which threatened to slowly erode them away to impotence. You mean they, lo- they lose one a day, basically, anyway? And if you think about it, that you can s- that think what it must have been like. You could see your death coming towards you, in, in a way, or death, wounding, or imprisonment, or, or disaster, anyway. Now, experience was at a premium, and... Uh, 
in the revolving doors environment of the officer's mess as one pilot was lost, another would arrive within a few hours. Can you imagine that? That must be awful. So a new pilot, a new observer in the in the uh, uh, call squadrons would arrive and to replace the ones who died that day. It must have been a weird atmosphere in the mess. Terrible. Now, for five long days, the British had fought their diversionary battle on the Arras uh, front. Yet they had to keep the pressure up for two more days. Why? Why, Ooh, Gary? What, that because Why? the date of the French assault was was uh, the sixteenth of April. Right. Right. Now, on the 14th of April, a scout patrol from 54 Squadron found themselves under heavy attack. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Russell Smith of, of 54 Squadron says. We came upon a hostile aircraft and drove them down. As my tracer bullets appeared to be hitting the target without causing any apparent da da damage, unfortunately, I stayed in the power dive too long. When I pulled out, I'd lost contact with, with my flight. I started to regain altitude, keeping a sharp lookout all around, especially above me, but there was no one close. I soon spotted three aircraft in a V formation below and behind, coming up from the east to attack. I carried on, watching them and looking for any others. When those below me got closer, I was convinced by their speed and peculiar markings that they belonged to Rick Doffin's tra travelling circus, otherwise known as flying circus. When I estimated that my machine would, would have come into their gun sights as they climbed and, and, and before they started to fire, I turned quickly and dived on the leader on a collision course, firing continuously. The two outside planes fanned out outwards in climbing turns and the leader soon pushed his nose down and passed under me. I started evasive action and then my engine misfired and I knew I had run out of fuel. Well, Without the engine, there was only one defence. I closed the throttle and put the machine into a tight vertical spin. You'd have called that a split arse uh, spin, I think. I would have done, yeah. Intending to come out of it at, at a low altitude and land. There was no indication that my attackers were following me down and I didn't see them again. It may be that they thought they'd finished me. Well, that's interesting because in those circumstances, it's almost impossible to tell whether an aircraft was fatally damaged or merely feigning injury to get away from the uh, pursuing hunters. As height was all important in aerial fighting, it was often considered pointless to descend alongside a doomed aircraft just for the satisfaction of seeing it splinter into smithereens on crashing. Yeah, because if you surrendered at height to see what was happening, you might be bounced yourself and you might end up being dead next to the other one yeah now this was uh, of course that's exactly what russell smith was trying to to, to achieve he was relying on that and uh, this is what he goes on to say when in a small plane spinning in a tight corkscrew motion one seems to be in the center of a huge bowl of which the horizon is a brim and the whole earth as far as one can see forms the bowl which is turning about a point directly below at the same speed and then the opposite direction from that in which the plane is spinning i'd be sick <laughs> When nearer the ground, I abandoned the spin and glided west, taking evasive action against possible ground fire. When the throttle was open, the engine started, but only for a moment. The tank was empty. I could see trenches, but not occupants, and I thought I was near the front lines, but couldn't determine on which side, or if I was in no man's land. 
I was surprised that there was not more shell holes. Right in front of me, the ground appeared level, so I touched down as slowly as possible in a tail-down stall landing and was out of the pancake, of the cockpit, out of the pancake. I was thinking that's a pancake like the other bloke was trying to do. (laughs) That made me say pancake. And was out of the cockpit before the plane had stopped running. The aircraft was intact. It just lacked fuel. Now, it didn't pay to linger too long above the pockmarked surface of no man's land, so he had to go to ground as quickly as possible. And Second Lieutenant Russell Smith goes on to say, Without a moment's delay, I started to run or scramble as quickly as possible in full flying kit to the nearest shallow. I was about to jump in when I saw that it was half full of water. Continuing to another hole further from the plane, I found it dry and clean and still warm from the explosion of the shell that had created it. Artillery was ranging on my machine and the ground around me shook continually from the near misses. When the bombardment slackened, there was a noise of a rifle bullet passing over my head. After one or two more bullets, I suspected a sniper was busy. (laughs) How does it end? Well, you have to read my book. What's the book called? Bet you can't remember. Tumult in the skies. Bloody April. (laughs) Now, wounded by shrapnel, Russell Smith eventually escaped after his series of terrible experiences. Which you'll have to read about. In bloody April. Yeah. Now, it's important to remember that not all missions ended in failure. Yeah. The basis of the Royal Flying Corps' success was that their sheer numbers allowed them to bear the losses, to keep on going, and most importantly of all, to keep getting the results the army wanted and, in fact, needed. Yeah, needed, desperately needed. And we're going to look at a couple of successful missions because otherwise you get the wrong impression. And this one is a, a successful photographic reconnaissance on the morning of 14th of April, and it's carried out by 25 squadron who were uh, well they were lucky enough to be being escorted by the Sopwith triplanes of number 8 Naval Squadron Royal Naval Air Service good to play tribute to those lads as well because they're playing their part and you're going to be one of those escorts uh, Flight Sub-Lieutenant Edward Crundell of 8 Naval Squadron At 8am Booker led sea flight on a patrol to escort the FEs of 25 Squadron RFC who are on photographic duty My engine was running badly and I could not keep up with the formation. At about 9am, when a long way on the German side of the lines, I saw two machines flying parallel to the west. I'd never seen a type of aeroplane quite like them. They looked somewhat like Newports, but much bigger. I realised they were probably Huns, which Seaflight had not seen. I was a bit scared because I was a straggler all on my own, and these ominous-looking aeroplanes blocked my way to safety. I was at a great disadvantage because my engine was running so badly. I realised I must make a decision. The thought of being taken prisoner terrified me, so I decided to go and have a look and sell my life as dearly as possible, if I had to fight. I climbed as steeply as I could, and they immediately did likewise, so I became more suspicious than ever. They were about two or three miles away, so when slightly above them, I turned abruptly to the left and approached. At about 100 yards distance, I saw they were both two-seaters, and almost immediately afterwards the iron cross on the top plane of one of them, so I knew for certain they were Huns. At that distance, one of the observers on the back seat opened fire on me. This made me furious. I literally saw red, and dived on the tail of the nearest fire in my gun all the time. I got closer and closer to his tail until I was almost touching it and could see the pilot and observer's heads and every detail of the machine. 
Suddenly, the German machine fell over on one wing and went down in a steep nosedive. I was thrilled and started to relax, but only for a moment because I was attacked from behind by the other enemy machine. Again, I saw red and was just as furious as on the first occasion. I swung round, got on his tail and opened fire at the same close range. After a long spell of firing, he started to dive and it got steeper and steeper until I realised the triplane's wings would break off if I increased my own dive. Previously, I had thrown caution to the winds because as I entered each fight, I did not expect to come out of them alive. So I shut off the engine and eased the triplane out of the dive when I found it was very left wing heavy and I had to fly with the stick fully over to the right. When I returned to sea flight, I was told my triplane was almost falling to pieces and quite unsafe to fly in its present condition. The flying wires were stretched and very slack and one of the centre section struts had cracked and bent out of shape. Only one bullet hole had been found, which was in the lowest left-hand plane. Now, he's quite lucky. That, uh, he means when, when he returned to sea flight, it doesn't mean the formation. He means back home at his airfield. Um, it, 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 that's a narrow escape. And it isn't bullets. It's, uh, it's the, he's thrown his aircraft around and it, it, he's overdone it. And, uh, and it nearly fell apart in the, in the air. Does he, does, he get, uh, does he get awarded those two uh, kills, which may yeah, or may I mean, not have been shot down? It, it, his, um, his tail, as it were, is backed up by the corroborative reports from kite balloon observers and one of the pilots from 25 Squadron. Fair enough. So he was awarded the two victories. Perhaps more to the point, the FE-2Bs had managed to complete their mission undisturbed and taken a full set of photographs. So as an escort, they'd done their job because the, the, the machines that the FE-2Bs they were escorting had got the photos and that's what the army want and need. As you, as you point out, it's not just want, they need them. Now, you might get the impression from the British reports that the sky was literally teeming with German scouts. But in fact, there were usually well under 50 of them in action on any given day along the whole of the Arras front. So what's going on there? Well, uh, outnumbered, they certainly were the German scouts. So, so how do they husband them? How do they use them? In to, to, how to, what, 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 what's their policy like? What, what are they doing? Well, they're, they're, they only come together for a specific purpose. As you rightly say, outnumbered, they were fighting a defensive battle and they would only engage in combat when they considered it was to their advantage. Precious trained scout pilots couldn't be thrown away in useless gestures against the odds. So they'd only fight if they were in the superiority of numbers generally or, or it was a desperate, something desperate was going on. And, and uh, yes, I could see the point. You, 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 if you shoot down, if you're a highly trained scout pilot and I shoot down you, that's no good. I, I need to shoot down three, four, five, six, seven, fifty before it's worthwhile giving your own life. So there's an element of caution. Um, wow. Now, many of the British pilots, they take heart from the recent advance on the ground. They can see the advances the army had achieved. And although the new German lines and belts of barbed wire were equally obvious, they felt that at last there were real grounds for hope. And once more, you're going to tell us what Captain Bernard Rice of 8 Squadron says. He's a pretty optimistic chap, this, and he says this. You know, I think next autumn we'll see the final coup, if not actually the end of the war. We are still advancing. There has been a pause while we cleared a line of heights. I think we got them this morning, in which case we shall make another rush forward. But he's not wrong, though, is he? Oh, no, I think he is wrong. Uh, the situation, if anything, no, it's, no, no. it's, it's fast deteriorating. his prediction. Oh. Next autumn. Next autumn. Oh, ooh. 
he's not wrong. I said, Gary, I never noticed that. But next autumn, I thought I was thinking him at this autumn. No, no, next autumn. Yeah, it's, it's a northern southern thing. This Friday, next Friday, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'd never seen it that way. That's absolutely fascinating, and he isn't wrong. Now, the situation on the ground, if anything, as no, you say... At, at that moment, at what that, a great point. Well it's done, fast yeah. deteriorating. None of the recent British small-scale attacks had succeeded in achieving their objectives. and uh, They're in, doomed. They're, yeah. they're not going to succeed. There's no chance. Well, they're made on narrow fronts designed to see specific tactical objectives and they, they fell hapless prey to the concentrated fire of the German artillery and machine guns from both flanks who were not under attack and could pour in a murderous fire. Uh, well, it's just murderous, isn't it? Yeah. Um, now, um, so the, the Royal Flying Corps, they're trying their best, but infantry casualties are rising fast. Uh, 15th of April, the, the weather's, for the most part, unsuitable for flying. Uh, it's uh, blustery, very blustery, high, uh, high winds uh, and terrible visibility, so there's not a lot of point in them being up there. But still... Some aircraft managed to get up and, and get aloft. And, and you, you're going to tell us a story of the RE-8, that's the new uh, artillery observation and core aircraft, flown by 2nd Lieutenants W. Buckingham and W. R. Cox uh, of uh, 15 Squadron. And they achieved something quite special. Um, and, and they're Australian. And 2nd uh, Lieutenant Wilfred Cox of 15 Squadron Royal Flying Corps left this account. It's a fantastic achievement what they get up to we heard heavy rifle fire about 4,000 yards behind the front line and saw considerable numbers of our troops in extended order, obviously in action. Further inspection revealed that the enemy had launched an attack against the Australians who were on our right and facing Quiant, and that they had been driven back to the point where we heard the rifle fire. We heard afterwards that the initial surprise of the German attack was so complete that they were able to destroy a battery of 4.5-inch howitzers by hand. One brigadier is said to have fought in his pyjamas. By the time we had appreciated the situation, it was about 0600 hours. No other aircraft was up at the time because of the weather. Under these circumstances, it was something of a field day for us. Confident that the weather was keeping aircraft away, the Germans seemed to make no attempt at concealment. We commenced sending zone calls and Sue obtained replies from the artillery. By 08.30, the enemy had been forced back as far as our front line, where he broke and fled back across no man's land for the gap which had been cut in their wire during the night. We saw great congestion at these points. It was like a crowd struggling to rush through a narrow door. Our machine guns and field guns were firing into the mass and caused many casualties. Over 200 prisoners had been captured by our troops. Now, you were being uh, Second Lieutenant Wilfred Cox. I made a mistake. He wasn't Australian, but the, the other chap, uh, or Buckingham, uh, was Australian. That's so he, why I didn't do an Australian uh, accent. Uh, yes, you, you, you really are proving to be correct in all fronts in this uh, particular podcast. Uh, he, uh, so he's helping his own countrymen because it's the Australians that are under attack uh, in, in their hour of need, Gary, their hour of need. Um, but what, what do you think about this? Why, why am I so entranced by this particular incident, do you think? Well, because that kind of exploit was the absolute essence of the work of the Royal Flying Corps. The uh, veritable deluge of shells brought down by the zone calls had probably killed more Germans than were killed by any of the great war aces over the whole of their flying career. Yeah, a zone call is basically you just every one of the core artillery, which is a lot of batteries, will open up not at a target but at a square on the map. 
Yeah. And that, there's a German division attacking across no man's land in that square. It's a lethal method of, uh, of, of opening fire. Um, and it, it, it is just death, death, death. Uh, now, for all the suffering, all the triumphs, both in the air and on the ground, it's surely soon going to be over, isn't it? The Great War, 1914-1917, would be finished once and for all by Nivelle's Great Advance, which was time to commence when, Pete? 16th of April, 1917. And he promised victory within 48 hours, hence 1914-17, the Great War. Victory would be soon. Hurrah. Or would it? Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it